One of the things that the scriptures encourage us to do is to encourage each other. And so let me draw your attention on the back walls. There's still a few cards hanging out on those back walls that are addressed to servers from this last semester. People who've served you and your family, who've served our church secretly in some of the dangerous positions we have. Crossing guards, for instance, laying down their life. Um, Two-year-old, dangerous positions like that, teaching twos. Um, If you would grab one on your way out and just jot a short note of encouragement to those people and pray for them, that would mean a lot to them. And we'd like to have all of those down today. The people from the first service wanted them all, but they saved some for you. So make a note, grab one. You can write it before you leave today and leave it in the lobby. And uh, if you can deliver it, hand deliver it, or you can drop it back again next week. We'll make sure that it gets to the people that they belong to. But we'd love for all those to be passed out and that encouragement to spread. So today we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 23. You can open there in your Bibles, and I'd like to pray for our time there. Bow with me, please. Father, have mercy. Have mercy on us now, and uh, give us ears to hear your word, to truly hear it, and glad hearts to receive it, so that we can leave this room and with joy and perseverance do it. So we ask this, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. So um, Joshua 23 begins this way. Long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads and judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And so you're picking up on the idea that Joshua is old and well advanced in years. And some people have tried to calculate based on markers that we have to his age. And best guess is that he might be 110. So Joshua is old and well advanced in years at this point in time. And he is um, he's about to deliver his clo- one of his closing messages to the people. And I want to give you a little spoiler alert here in terms of how the book of Joshua ends. It's not much of a spoiler alert because we only have two chapters left in the book of Joshua, Uh, but it is that. It's It's a spoiler, and here it is. The main idea of his closing two sermons is this. God is faithful. God is radically faithful, and and you are right to trust God to keep his promises to you. You are right to, to, to do that. You know, this book is saturated with this message. This is really no spoiler alert. You've heard this all throughout the book of Joshua. Um, it begins uh, with a promise. The very third verse of the book. Every place that the sole of your foot, Joshua, will tread upon, God says, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. And as you get near the end of the book, it brackets it with that same language. Chapter 21, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. In last week's passage, chapter 22, and the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. There's a sense in which Joshua is simply a record of God keeping his promises to his people. And that's how our passage starts. Joshua's recounting for the people God's faithfulness. Um, Look at verse 3, for instance. I'm going to skip around in this sermon 
It doesn't have a real tight structure, so I'm going to pull from here and there throughout it. Um, you may want to read it over later this afternoon just to get a better sense of the flow of the passage. <clears throat> but in verse 3, Joshua recounts the faithfulness of the Lord. He says, you have, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It's the Lord your God who's fought for you. Verse 5, the Lord your God will push them back before you, drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So he says, the Lord has been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future to keep his long ago promise to Abraham that his descendants would inherit this land. So if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, in the 12th chapter, this is what we read. Abram, Abraham, passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So Abraham, long before, was in the land of Canaan when this is taking place. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord. So now, some, uh, by some counts, 700 years later-ish, God is keeping this promise that he made to Abraham. See, God keeps his promises, all of them. Even the long-delayed ones, he will keep. The book of Joshua is the unfolding of that in history. And uh, this sermon in chapter 23 of Joshua just recounts it over and over and over. Look at verse 9. For the Lord has driven out before you great, strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. And it really gets hammered home down in verse 14. It reads like this. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, Joshua says. I'm 110 years old. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you, all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. See, Joshua, it's evident, he's very aware, these are um, amongst his last words. And with those closing words of his life, he wants God's people to know that their God, that's our God, is radically faithful. He always keeps his promises. Always. So, have you ever made a promise that you couldn't keep? So, for instance, maybe you promised your daughter you'd be at her recital, but you had to work late. You couldn't show up. You promised your wife you'd be home for dinner at 6, but you got caught in traffic. You couldn't keep your promise. Okay? We make promises all the time that we cannot keep. This never happens to God. He never makes a promise that he cannot keep. Every word has been kept. Not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. This is the radical backdrop 
for the Old Testament portrait and the New Testament portrait of the faithfulness of God. You hear it echoing in Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And we sing it. Great is your faithfulness. Hebrews declares it. I will never, God says, leave you nor forsake you. God is radically faithful to his promises. And in his sermon, that's what, that's what he's painting about who God is in Joshua 23. But then he turns and he presses the people to respond to that with their own faithfulness. And the shape that our faithfulness is supposed to take comes out in three really clear commands interspersed in this. Look at the first one in verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Okay. First thing he says, that our response to God's faithfulness is that we are to keep and do. Keep and do the commands of God. Um, and this is another one of those bracketing things for the whole book. The book started this way. Back in chapter 1, to Joshua, God says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You know, our response to God's faithfulness to his promises is to pour over the scriptures and keep and do what he has asked of us. And it, and that makes perfect sense um, if you stop and think about it. Imagine that you had a wealthy benefactor. It's that mythical uh, rich uncle that everybody wishes that they had. And you get a certified letter from your rich uncle. And he says that he's on his deathbed. And what's contained in this registered letter is everything that he is bequeathing to you um, upon his passing. And so uh, what would you do with that letter? You'd devour that letter. You'd open it up. You'd read every line. You would, you would consider what it says. And you would, you know, comply with what he asks of you, right? And that, that assumes, of course, that your uncle is not some great practical joker or some legendary liar. But if he's a man of integrity, then you are going to read every line of that with expectation. And our God has proven himself to be faithful to his promises. Every word. So it only makes sense that they would and that we would meditate on what he's written for us day and night. So that we be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then we will, our way will be prosperous and then we will have success. Now the people in, in Joshua, the people get this. Okay? This is one of the high points of their obedience to God in, in the Old Testament. They get it, and they respond with this serious commitment. They say to Joshua, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him, shall be put to death. Okay? That's how earnest they are about keeping and doing what God's commanded them through Joshua. 
And you see this same kind of earnestness later on in the book, chapter 8. Joshua, it says, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Because God is so radically faithful, we are right to be faithful in return and keep and do his word. It makes, it makes sense for us to do that. So, how is your keeping and doing these days? Can you remember your last act of intentional obedience to God where you read something in Scripture and you felt compelled to act upon it? Can you remember the last time that you disobeyed what God had said to you? If you can't remember, I'm, I'm almost more concerned about the fact that you can't remember than if you had a whole litany of disobediences that come to mind. Right? As Ellie Vassell says, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And I hope that you haven't become indifferent to how you are doing with respect to God's commands. Okay. So, keep and do, and the second command is down in verse 8. You shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. So they've done well with this. He's asking them to cling to their faithful God. Professor David Howard writes about this. He says that the, the root word that's used here to, in, in modern Hebrew is the word they use for glue. When you cling, it's the word that they use now for glue. Um, throughout the Old Testament, it has meanings like this. He says, it's like a hand that clings to a sword. It's like the scales on a crocodile. It's like metal joined by a blacksmith. It's like a belt that clings to a man's waist. It's like skin clinging to bones. It's loyalty and close proximity and affection all wrapped up when we cling to God like this. It finds its way in the New Testament when Jesus quotes Genesis, he says, um, A man therefore shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's this idea of clinging to his wife. We are to be loyal to God like a husband is loyal to his wife. We cling to God with an exclusive allegiance. Right? We stay close to him. And so it's calling, God is calling us to cling to him throughout our days, throughout our every days. Um, these daily rhythms of pursuit of God help us cling to him. Do you have ways throughout your day that help you cling to God? Do you have things that help you do that so you don't drift away during the day? I mean, simple little things that remind you of your great need and love for God. Um, Post-it note reminders. Maybe your watch chimes. Maybe you have what I call room entering prayers. You enter a conference room for a meeting and you pray a prayer. You enter your house at the end of the day. You pray a prayer. You enter into a classroom. You pray a prayer. Little simple prayers that in the past have been, you know, part of our vocabulary but meaningless. Help me Jesus. If you just pray that when you walk into a meeting, it changes. It helps you cling to God. Help me, Jesus. Lord, have mercy. Okay. Christ, be with me. 
So we, we must cling to God. We must hold fast to him like white on rice, like wet on rain, like stink on a skunk, like bugs on a windshield, like PB on J. Okay, you get the idea. Cling to God. Don't pull away from him. Find ways throughout your day to stay engaged because God is faithful. We are right to cling to him, okay? Like a mullet on a redneck, okay? Like lint on a dark suit, okay? Cling. You can't get you off. You are so near to God. So, like like obedience, clinging is an intentional act. How are you building clinging practices into your everyday life of meetings and classes and projects and laundry? Okay. Well, there's a third command in here that shapes our faithful response to God's faithfulness. Uh, you keep and do, you cling. And down in verse 11, it says very simply, be very careful, very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Because God is so faithful, we love him back. Okay? We cultivate a deep affection for him. Since he keeps his every promise to us, we are right to love him. Not just to go through actions um, that honor him. Not just to learn about him. But to love him. We enjoy him. We like God's company. We're cultivating that. Okay? We keep and do, we cling, and we, we love God. And with these three commands, it's like Joshua is unpacking something he said last week. Look back at chapter 22 in verse 5. He says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Keep and do. Cling and love. Okay. There's a Christian author, his name is Os Guinness. And uh, he grew up, um, must have been, probably, I'm guessing this must, may have been in the 40s, um, as a child of medical missionaries. He says, in a China that had been ravaged for two centuries of European and American adventuring, and then by World War II and a brutal civil war. We lived in Nanjing, which was then the nation's capital, but there were a few good schools to go to. So at the age of five, I found myself setting off by plane to a boarding school in Shanghai. He says, um, obviously the conditions behind the decision to send me at that age to boarding school were extreme. Um, and he says, but I wasn't the only one launched on that path so young. It was the first time in my life that I'd been away from my parents and on my own. So to be a constant reminder of the North Star of the faith at the center of our family life. My father searched for two smooth, flat stones, small enough to fit in my pocket, and painted on them, on one of them, his life motto, and on the other one, my mother's life motto. He says, for many years, those two little stones were tangible memos in the pockets of my gray flannel shorts that were the uniform of most English schoolboys in those days. 
in my right-hand pocket was my father's motto, found faithful. And in my left-hand pocket was my mother's, please him. He says, many years have passed since then, and both of those little painted stones were lost in the chaos of escaping from China when Mao Zedong and the people's army eventually overran Nanjing, returned the capital to Beijing, and been their iron and bloody rule of the entire country. But I've never forgotten the lesson of those little stones. Followers of Jesus are called to be found faithful and to please him always, everywhere, and in spite of everyone and everything. See, our best response to God's radical promise-keeping faithfulness is to be faithful. It is our faithfulness to keep and do, to cling and love. But in this sermon that Joshua gives, there's a shadow side of God's faithfulness that we don't often think about. He says, God is not only faithful to bless, he will also be faithful to judge. Look down at verse 12. He says, if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good ground that the Lord has given to you. And if that isn't a strong enough warning about God's faithfulness to judge, um, look at verse 15 and 16. Just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land that he has given to you. This is a promise God is going to keep as well. He's going to be faithful in this as well, Joshua is warning them. He's going to be faithful to bless, and he's going to be faithful to judge even his own people for their unfaithfulness. And this language goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus. And you encounter it, it sounds like this. But if you will not listen to me, God says, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. And so Joshua, with his next-to-last words, is deeply concerned that God's people will stray away from their faithfulness to God, that they will cling, but they won't cling to God. Instead, they will cling to the gods of the people of Canaan that are left around them. And so in the strongest of terms here, he is pleading with them, warning them of this kind of dark side of the faithfulness of God. He is faithful to bless, yes, but he's also faithful to judge. And the, the great sorrow is that if you flipped your Bible over about two pages, you'll find that what Joshua is concerned about is exactly what they did. 
And in Judges chapter 2, we read, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the gods of Canaan. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. How far God has allowed his people to fall. They go from this string where he grants this string of victories where he fights for them. But now they're being sold into the hands of their enemies. And the question for us is, how could this happen? How could it happen to them? How could it happen to us? And that's really the story of the book of Judges. And if you've been taking our life change class on the book of Judges, you know that story. It's a, it's a dark story. Um, but you also get a sense for some of the pitfalls in this chapter from some of Joshua's language here. So look back at verse 6 in chapter 23. Joshua says, Therefore be very strong and keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. He uses similar language in verse 12. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. And so he seems really concerned about their interconnecting with these people, um, mixing, clinging, marrying, associating. It's language of intimacy and influence. Okay. It led to what someone called the canonization of Israel, where they became like the people around them. Okay. Pastor Sam Storms offers one theory as to how that happened. He says they were seduced by what they saw. Their eyes and thus their hearts were filled with the sensuality and decadence of the surrounding pagan culture and they were lured away from their God. Canaanite religion was explicitly and pervasively sexual in nature. Ritual prostitution was rampant. And he says, you can't control the fact that you and I must live in this same world, but you can control how much of this world you allow yourself to see and so this associational influence, relationships that influence you towards them, is a continued concern in the New Testament. More commonly, you've, you've probably heard it, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What, what accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Okay. It's a concern in the Old Testament and the New, and it, and it is for us as well. This associational influence. Um, band Casting Crowns put a lyric to it. 
a couple years ago. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go, for it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. Are you being seduced by what you see? By what you watch? Are your viewing standards higher or lower than they were, say, five years ago? Are your viewing standards different than your neighbor who doesn't follow Christ? How do you protect yourself from images that are designed to cause you to turn aside from following Christ? They were seduced by what they saw. But there's also seduction that jump, comes as a result of what we think, especially when our minds are not night and day meditating on God's word. It's interesting, Margaret, uh, Marguerite Schumann rather, uh, wrote a book called A Walking Guide to Duke University, and this is what she describes. She says, the students of Duke walk across the green quadrangle before the chapel each day, passing a bronze tablet bearing words that were written by Dr. Plato Durham for Trinity College around 1903. Before Duke University became Duke University, it was called Trinity College. That was its founding name. Um, and it says, uh, these aims that are written on that tablet, which have been modified only by institutional name change in more than 70 years, read this way. This is, these are the aims of Duke University. The aims of Duke University are to... Uh, Assert a faith in the eternal union of knowledge and religion set forth in the teachings and character of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who knew, right? Duke University, their aim is to assert a faith in the eternal union of knowledge and religion set forth in the teachings and character of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I regularly visit um, Duke University. Uh, their, their gardens there are unbelievable, and I just find it really great space when we take people to train them in the practice of how to spend a half day in prayer, the gardens and the chapel, and there's some other spaces there that are really helpful for uh, doing that process, and so we often go over there. And I have walked that very green quadrangle in front of the chapel and stood in front of that monument and looked at it and wondered um, what happened between 1903 or 1924, those are the dates that this is attributed to, and now? Because who would have known, if I had read that and said, tell me what university this is their aim, who would have guessed Duke University for that aim? Um, something has happened. And so I like to pull people over to that monument and say, what, look at this. Can you believe this is Duke's aim? What happened? Could it happen to us? Could it happen to you where one day would say, that was your aim? To follow Jesus and love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That was your aim? 
we need what Professor David Howard calls an associational audit. He says, this cause for us to audit our inventory of associations, our friendships, our business associates, our coworkers, club memberships, social networks, and the like, in order to assess their influence. Picture yourself, he says, in the middle of a street facing Jesus on one curb with a given associate, association on the other. Be honest with yourself and perhaps seek the advice of a wise outsider. Has that connection drawn you away from Jesus or has it had no effect? Ideally, it would draw the non-Christian to join you in the middle facing Jesus, moving towards Jesus. So does it stir up ethical or moral qualms? Has it affected your attitudes or infected your vocabulary? Is your motivation to honor and represent God through it? Or does it feed common but not necessarily Christ-like desires? Is there a mixing, as Joshua would call it, an association in your life that is wooing you away from Christ and to the gods of our day? of pleasure and power and wealth and sex and such. See, Joshua is so deeply concerned about this, he says in verse 7, not even to make mention of the names of their gods. So just a couple of years ago, I was on one of those trips uh, over to, to Duke with some people doing one of the prayer exercises that we do. And walked across that quad where that monument is. And I went past there and I noticed something. The monument was gone. It's no longer there. Um, they took it down. And, you know, recently there was a, a monument to, a, I think it was to a, maybe to a Civil War leader. And it was taken down because of the racial issues that are connected with that and that was a big deal in all the paper but I can't find anywhere online anywhere that records anything about removing the statement that Duke was founded as an explicitly Christ honoring Christ teaching institution nowhere it was just quietly taken away now it's still in the chapel there somewhere I think it's harder to remove there Walter Chapman said something profound. He said, anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work difficult is wrong for me. And I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. Peter warned us, he said, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I pray that he will not devour you. Okay. Let's pray toward that end right now if we could. Lord, um, Joshua is so concerned for his people and I know that through Joshua you are concerned for us. That we live in a sea of other faiths and other religions and idols and even demons who would woo us away from you and uh, we hear their siren song every, every day every day relentlessly every day so Lord help us now to examine to just take a moment and examine have I 
have I named the names of the gods of this world? Have I named the names of pleasure, the gods of pleasure and comfort, and let them rule my day? Have I named the names of the gods of power and achievement and let them dictate my time and my energy? Have I named the name of the gods of sex and greed and pursued them no matter the cost? Have I named the name of the god of me put me in a place where only you should be Yahweh the one true God so Lord help us to, to hear the, the subtle prompting of your spirit in these matters and help us Lord to heed the, the good advice of our, of our shepherd Joshua this morning. Help us, Lord, to keep and do, to cling and, and to love. And as we are mindful this morning of things we need to cast down, of associations we need to break, of patterns that must stop, we confess those to you now. Um, it's a first step for us of forsaken, forsaking those things. And so let me invite you as the worship team leads us in this closing song of confession. If, if it would help you to pray with a friend down front or one of our leaders, this is a good time just to cast off things that have been tugging at you, associations that have been pulling you to the wrong side of that street. Let's, let's take a first, a good first step. Let's say yes to what God is asking us to forsake and cast off. So stand with me now. Let's sing this closing song. And if we can pray with you uh, down here, we would love to.